We are going to be in Acts chapter 6 tonight. Acts chapter 6. And tonight we are only going to be taking on seven verses. So I know we got a lot of Acts to get through by the end of the year. I seriously doubt we're going to make it, but we're going to get as far as we can, and maybe we'll finish up Acts next year and keep on rolling through it. But tonight, we're only going to be focusing on seven verses in Acts chapter 6, okay? Now, before we go on, you know, some of y'all look like you're happily married tonight, all right? And then some of you look like you're married tonight, okay? So whether you're happily married or you're married, doesn't matter where you are, you can always find ways to get better in your marriage, all right? And we are blessed to have two of the most married people I know. And I say that meaningfully, all right? I have watched, I have only known Clay and Lori Withers for a short time compared to many of you. But I'm telling you what, I have never seen a couple that is so married so in love with each other, but like helping of each other, man. And Clay needs a lot of help. So mostly that's her for him. But seriously, I, I've just watched them do life together. And so tonight they, at 630, they are going to be beginning a two-week marriage enrichment thing. And I don't think it matters if you've been married uh, barely, you're about to get married, been married one year, you've been married a hundred years, whatever it is. Um, I, I, I think the Lord would speak to you if you'd uh, give him a chance to about your marriage. All right. So Clay, we're in the fellowship hall. Is that right? 630. All right. So Jeff's got to shuck some corn so we can get out of here in time. All right. All right. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. And we thank you so much for loving us first, for loving us best, Lord. And Lord, given us everything we need for life and godliness, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, that anytime we dig into your word, Lord, that you've got something to say. So I pray that tonight you would say something, Lord, and that it wouldn't come from me, it would come from you, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for passages of scripture like these seven verses we're going to look at tonight that absolutely, like, so much relate to where we are today as churches, Lord. And I just thank you, Lord, that you showed us through Acts what was important to you as you birthed the church, Lord. And Lord, help it to remain important to us today as we organize and live our, our lives for you as the body of Christ. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, here we go. Again, we are looking at Acts to see what the priorities of God were in the earliest moments of the birth of the church so we can see how we are lining up with those things today, 2,000 years later, all right? Man, how can, a, how can a something that happened 2,000 years ago be relevant for us today? I think this passage is going to uh, just, you're, you're not going to have a hard time answering that question. All right, Acts chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 1. I'm going to read it for you, and then we'll dig into it, all right? Acts 6, verse 1 begins by saying, In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, 
it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and even large numbers of priests, Jewish priests, became obedient to the faith. Is momentum still happening in the early church? Yeah, it is. All right. Let's talk about this passage a little bit. First of all, always remember where two or more are gathered in his name, there will be issues and problems to overcome. Okay? It is not biblical, but it is dead gum truth, all right? I've heard that where two or more Baptists are gathered in his name, there's also a covered dish somewhere. But where two or more are gathered in his name, there are always going to be issues and problems to face and overcome. Not that we have any, right? The goal of a church, I want you to remember this, the goal of a church is not to create a problemless place, but to prayerfully solve each and every problem by seeking the wisdom of God in what to do and operating in the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. All right? Now, I know there's a lot of blanks in there today. I was feeling real blanky when I put that together for you, all right? But... Um, you know, I think that sometimes we feel bad, we feel guilty, we feel responsible to create places in our church and even sometimes in our family and ministry. I think we've been sold a lie that the goal of life is to build ourselves a comfortable place, a problemless place, uh, and, and that when problems come, it's a bad thing. Well, I want you to know that, um, man, it doesn't take long to read about read through Scripture to realize that that place doesn't exist, right? In fact, the Bible tells us that it is through problems that God reveals Himself to us in ways that we would never know Him otherwise, right? And so the goal is not to get bummed out when we've got problems in the church or even in our own lives, but the goal is to seek God's wisdom in what to do, right? And then get empowered by the Holy Spirit to have the guts to do it, right? And sometimes he gives us the easy fix, you know? Man, don't we wish that every time we had a serious ailment that the shadow of Peter would cross over us and all of a sudden, oh, we're healed, ah! right? But sometimes God calls us to walk through six months of rehab and two weeks of ICU, right? 
The question is, when you get out of rehab on the other side of it, are you better or are you bitter? Is God more to you? Or do you just have more questions for God? You see what I'm trying to say? As a church, when we face problems, right, are we willing to go to God, seek his wisdom for exactly what we need to do, and then be desperate for the Holy Spirit to show in, up in us, right, to do that thing, even if it's a hard thing, even if it's a difficult thing, even if it's a crazy thing, right? That's what problems are all about. And that's what this story helps us to understand, right? That we shouldn't run from problems. We should run to God for the solving of our problems, right? Now, there's another thing that I want to talk to you about all this, about problem solving, that, that I think this passage of Scripture talks to us about. It talks, well, we, we see the church looking for the wisdom of God, right? And one thing that I would like to say to our church, because I think it's a word that our church needs desperately, and that is this, is that the wisdom of God is always prudent, how many of you that are above the age of 65 know somebody from your childhood whose name was Prudence? How many of you, like, in your 20s didn't even know that anybody would, mothers would ever name them the name Prudence, right? All right? Prudent is a word that used to be used 150 years ago a lot. And it was appreciated so much that you would maybe even name your child Prudence because you hoped they would be prudent, okay? So let's talk about that word because I'm sure you have no clue what that word means, all right? Prudence is coming to a decision that not only addresses the problem of today, but it also lays the groundwork for not creating more problems for tomorrow. It comes from a Latin word that means to foresee. In other words, when you come to a prudent decision, when you get a word of wisdom, it is going to be prudent. Why do I say that? Because in Proverbs, the Bible says that there are seven pillars of wisdom. And one of the pillars of wisdom that come from God is called out as prudence, right? Prudence is when you seek God and he gives you an answer, prudence is the part of that answer that not only helps you to solve for today, but it creates the pathway for tomorrow. Have you ever answered a question today that bit you in the high knee for tomorrow? Did I say that? Y'all of you were going, yeah, I've been there, done that, right? There are so many times that we, that we get so focused on what is happening right now in this moment that we partner with quick answers, with easy answers that solve the problem today, but then they make it 10 times worse tomorrow. Know anybody that's ever done that with a credit card? You know anybody that's ever done that when in disciplining their children? Have you ever known somebody that did that in not telling their spouse the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? All right? 
Churches do it too, right? We make decisions that solve for today, but we don't go to God long enough to let him show prudence in decisions that don't make tomorrow twice as hard. Are you following with me? Are you tracking with me? I talk to the staff all the time here about, hey, we need to play chess, not checkers. You ever played checkers? And you got the board all in front of you. There's black ones and there's red ones. And they all look the same, right? And basically what you do is you just look there and go, there's a move. 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 There's a move, right? And the game is over when you've got one more move than your, you know, your opponent, right? And so you just jump what's in front of you. You just move to what's in front of you. That's, that's the basis of checkers. But when I was a kid, I had a friend who we were like six years, seven years old when I learned to play chess. And the reason why I loved to play chess at Michael Moore's house was because Michael Moore had this chess set that was actually the size of a coffee table. And again, I wasn't this tall. I was that tall. So I walked up to that coffee table and I saw this giant rook on the end. And then I saw a knight. And then I saw the bishop. And then I saw a king and a queen. And then all of them on this side. And then I saw this row of pawns. And I said, Michael, what's this all about? He said, it's chess, man. I said, will you teach me? He said, yes. And so for years, me and Mike played chess. And when you play chess, each part does something different than the others. Some can move this way all they want to, and some can move that way all they want to, and some have to jump two spaces this way and one over this way, and some can only move forward unless they're going to kill somebody, and then they can go over and kill them on the side, right? So every piece on there can do all these crazy things at any given time, but here's the main thing about chess that I love and that makes me get excited about prudent decisions. And that is in chess, there is a rule that when you make your move, that as long as you keep your finger on the piece that you just moved, you're, you haven't started yet. There's a comedian that says, don't you wish life was like that? That you could walk into a bank and think about robbing a bank and you could go, all right, stick them up, stick them up. Oh, no, I, I changed my mind. I'm not going to do it. And then you aren't responsible, right? See, in chess, you aren't responsible. You can move the piece and you can keep your finger on it because by moving that piece, it helps you to see all the things that might happen if you do that thing. Right? And when you're comfortable that that is the move that you want to make, that that is a move that's going to help you win the game, not lose your game, then you could take it off and say, okay, looking over all the options is what prudence is. Right? And when we beg God for his wisdom, he is always going to get, if we will wait, he is always going to give us a prudent decision that will solve for today, 
But in the same time, it will make a pathway for what he wants for tomorrow. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, One more thing about that that I want to point out is this, is that prudence is best done. In fact, it's not that it's impossible to be prudent without the Holy Spirit, but it's best done in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And what I mean by this is that some people can be prudent because they have a lot of earthly wisdom, or some people can seem prudent because they guessed right, but the Holy Spirit is always right, and the reason why is because only God knows the things that are to come. Amen? So if you are asking the Holy Spirit for a word of wisdom about a problem that you have, then he is going to give you something prudent every time because he not only knows the past, he not only knows the present, but God also knows the future, and he's not going to lead you astray. How do I know that? Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things, things of long ago. I am God. He says, and there ain't no other. I made known the end from the beginning, right? From ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God has always been in the business of knowing the end in the moment. He is always creating this moment because he has an end to accomplish with it. God is, can only be prudent because he can only be good. And he knows what's coming, right? That's why it's desperate for us to seek the Holy Spirit. And that's what the, that's what the church was doing as they faced this problem. All right. Now, you want to see how relevant this is to us today? The church was facing an accusation of cultural bias. You ever heard those words before in our current? There was racial problems. Ever had heard of a church that's had problems where racial divide was being called out in it and among it and through it? Happening all the time. Right. So was the very first days of the early church. The church was facing accusation of cultural bias. You see, there were people that were Hellenistic Jews, meaning Greek Jews. All right. They were Jewish converts from Greek, but they they didn't have a heritage of Hebrew of uh, lineage. They had a heritage of Greek that you could call them Gentile Jews, if you will, because they came from Gentile backgrounds, converted themselves to Judaism, converted themselves to Christianity as they heard the whole story of the message of Christ, right? And so they were not, they didn't speak, grow up speaking Hebrew. They didn't grow up speaking the same language. They spoke different languages, whatever else, but they were in the church, They were in this this church that was made up mostly of Jewish, former Jewish believers that were now Jewish completed because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, right? And so they spoke Hebrew. 
They knew the scriptures they had. So there was this cultural thing going on because of the race that people came from. And it was causing problems because they had they were they were feeding people. Do you remember? We read about how if anybody had a need, the church said, we're going to take care of it. And so they fed people, they gave them, they, they sold their own property and made it possible for people to have the money they need, the food they need. They had ministry going. They had their own hope network that was blowing and going, okay? All right? But here's the thing. All of a sudden, all these Jewish, these, these Hellenistic Jew Christians were saying, hey, our widows are not getting any food. How come all the Jewish people, the people that have Jewish backgrounds, how come those widows always get some food? But how come my Hellenistic widow friends are not getting any? What's going on? What I'm not saying is, is that the church was guilty of racial bias. What I am saying is, is that they were accused of it. And what I believe the Bible is inferring for us here is what they did was they didn't look at those people and go, ah, don't worry about it, it'll all work itself out. They dug into it. And what they found out was, was that they didn't have a racial problem, they had an organizational problem, right? The apostles and the disciples that were the, the, the starters of this ministry, and at the same time, they were also doing the ministry of the word, Right? They were preaching and they were teaching and they were doing the praying and doing things for the body of Christ, right? Were also the ones that were showing up to feed the widows. And they had more, they had more widows than they had organization. They didn't have a food problem, they had a people problem. They didn't have enough people to serve the food. They didn't have enough people to keep it organized. They didn't have enough people to make the ministry happen. And the ministry that was needed outgrew the ministry that was in place to supply the need. Do you get that? Okay. And so what that tells us is this. One thing about accusation and one thing about problem solving for the church is that we need to always make sure we know the difference between the fruit of the problem and the root of the problem. Because if we're lazy, we will sometimes answer the fruit problem and never get to the root of the problem. Are you tracking with me? Okay. The early church didn't just go, oh, well, shame on all the Jews for hating on all the Hellenistic. For a week, the next week, the Hellenistic Jews, y'all get to go first. So make sure y'all get they, That would have solved the fruit, but it would not have gotten the root of the problem figured out, right? It would not have been prudent because they would have solved something this week 
that would have meant a bigger problem next week because they were going to have more people to feed and they couldn't even, weren't even organized to fill the need that they had right there. Are you tracking with me? You see? So in church life, we need to always be seeking God to know the difference between the fruit of the problem and the root of the problem. How does this affect you? Well, there's going to be people that come up to you at all different times in all different ways and say, do you know what happened to me? That person kicked me out. I, I saw somebody, this is a true story that happened. I saw it happen, so I know it's true, all right? And I didn't read it on the internet. It really was true. I was in church one day, and there was a black couple who I saw them getting out of their seat to move over because a white guy came up to him and said, hey, that's my seat. And this sweet couple was getting up and moving to this other seat, and I saw the fruit of that, and I didn't like what I saw. And I went over to this sweet couple who was willing to move because of that, and I said, hey, man, yeah, I'm so sorry. I, I hope that what I just saw happen didn't happen. And they were like, oh, oh, no, 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 that didn't happen at all. You see, we were sitting right over there on the end of this shortened pew. And there's a man that comes in and wheelchairs his wife right next to him in that. And that's a place where he could sit every week with his wife. And he asked us if we would be willing to let them sit there so that he could sit by his wife. And so we just moved back a row. You see, there's a difference between what the fruit and the root, right? Sometimes things ain't like people think they is. Right? And if you want to be somebody that brings peace and unity to the church that don't necessarily partner immediately with the first 20-second soundbite. Be the kind of believer that's willing to go and find the root of what happened, not just look barely at the fruit of what's going on. Are you tracking with me? I know none of this applies to us. This is all 2,000 years ago. None of this is applicable to us today. But if that ever might happen to you, remember that when somebody comes to you with something like that, you don't know if they're telling right or they're telling wrong. You don't know if what's they, what they think happened or what actually happened. And if you lay your, the Bible says, don't lay hands on others too quickly and thus share in their sin. So if you want to be a peacemaker, commit to find out the root of the problem. If you want to be a fire maker, just put your blessing on everything that you hear. But please get in the back of the line because it's a long line, okay? Did I just say that? No, because that never happens in church today, all right? Never mind, all right. Let's move on, all right? So verse 2. The Bible said the root of the problem, like we've already talked about, is that the responsibilities of the leaders was greater than the attention 
that they could give. Okay? Here's the thing to remember. Both of those things were important. The responsibility of making sure that these widows had the food that they needed and it to be organized and done well was important. But so too was the ministry of the word. And so as the church sought the wisdom of God, the prudent wisdom of God, God revealed a plan to them and they expanded leadership to find those best shaped to lead food distribution so that those that were best shaped to minister the word could do it fully. You tracking with me? Okay. You see, they expanded leadership. Do you know that this is the passage of scripture why we have deacons in our church? When our deacons are are, are our powwowing when we do our deking thing, okay? And we ask each other, what, are, what, what, did, what does it mean for deacons to deke? <laughs> this is the passage that they go to. Now, I will tell you this. Some deacons in some churches, thankfully not ours, understand that this means that every deacon is supposed to, they have one job and that's to take care of the widows, okay? That's not what deaconing is all about. Deaconing is all about whatever the need is that can't be filled by the leadership that's in place to minister to the word. Deacons deke when they help make those things happen, when they expand the leadership moment, when they allow themselves to be used to keep ministry moments going, for the glory of God, right? Most deacons do minister to widows because it is a need all the time in every church. But we have deacons that are set up in our church to not only take care of widows, but also help us to serve the Lord's Supper. I mean, can you imagine Clay passing a tray around? I mean, I don't want him, he'd be spilling it all over everybody all the time, man. We need deacons, man. We need that dude to do what he does best, and that's minister the word. Not fill up the grape juice and the crackers. Is grape juice and crackers important? Absolutely. Is it good to remember the Lord? Absolutely. Is it good to minister the word? Absolutely. So we got to find people that are shaped to do that and the other, right? We got deacons that help. We got deacons that pray. We got deacons that fill gaps and do things that's it, they, their job is not to do this. It's to do, hey, whatever we need to do for the glory of God and for the health of the church to move forward. That's, that's how deacons deke. And this is the verse they get it from. This is the passage that they take their clues from right here, okay? Both things were important for this early church. It was important to take care of widows. It was also important to minister the word. And so they expanded leadership and they prayerfully selected seven men that were full of the Spirit and shaped for service, and they prayed over them, and they released them to do that ministry. Okay? Now, here's three things that had to happen. First of all, the apostles had to be willing to let it go. How many times does ministry in the church not get to happen because somebody isn't willing 
to let it go. They can't do everything, but they're not willing to let go part of it. And somebody that could be the answer never gets the chance to be the answer because a minister isn't willing to let it go. It happens, right? The second thing that, that I was thinking about when I read this passage that it took is it took new leaders being willing to say yes. It's one thing to understand where God says, hey, here's a prudent word of wisdom, let's go. And it's another thing for a church staff to say, hey, listen, here's what the Lord's called us to do and here's what it's going to take. But you know what? If you don't sign up to help those preschoolers, then we've identified the problem, but we haven't partnered with the solution. If you don't sign up to be willing to do what you are shaped to do, then the ministry need has been identified, but it takes ministers that are willing to let it go, and it takes leaders that are willing to step up and say, I will. And for some of you in this room, I love you. I love our senior adults. But like, I'm going to tell you this. If you get asked to do something and you say these words, I'm going to punch you in the face. And I don't care how old you are. And I'll go to jail, right? But if you, if, if you get asked to do something, there are a million reasons why God may tell you not to. But I promise you, I will punch you in the face if you say, I've already done my time. Are we clear on that? I love you. You know I wouldn't punch you in the face. I might trip you on your walker, but I wouldn't punch you in the face. All right. But the point is, is that apostles had to be willing to let go. New leaders had to be willing to say yes. And the church had to be willing to be trustworthy in their fellowship. Here's what I mean by that. What if all the Hellenistic Jews and all of the uh, whatever other kind of Jews they were, right? Um, Hellenistic and uh, uh, Hebraic, yeah. The, the H&H Jews. What if all the H&H old ladies or widows or whatever else, what if they had gotten up to the line that next day and all of a sudden they look up at, at, at Stephen and they go, Where's Peter? Peter always knows I get an extra roll. Peter always asks me about my, my gout. Peter's the one who saw me when I was at Jerusalem General Hospital. I want Peter. You hear what I'm saying? You're tracking with me? Not only do the apostles have to let go, not only did the new leaders have to step up, but the people had to be willing to be ministered to in this new God-given organizational way of doing things, right? It's that five-letter word called change. And there is trustworthy and there is trust-willing. And I say this to you specifically because a week from Sunday, we are going to be entrusting the search of the next lead pastor of Connection Point Church to 10 people 
that the, the transition team and the, and the lead team and the people that, that right now are, are, are called to lead the church in this transition have, have, have asked you to nominate people. They have gone through a process and these 10 people have been identified and they have said, I'll do it. And if you and I spend all of our time finding their picture so that we can go up to them every Sunday and say, have you found him yet? Why is it taking so long? Why are you looking at somebody from Texas? We're sick of Texas. I'm telling you what, if you're not trust willing to prayerfully trust that the Holy Spirit is going to lead them to the right man and get out of their way and let go and let God, then shame on you. And we deserve the worst pastor in the history of Baptist churches, if that's the way we're going to do it, right? So I'm challenging you that in a moment where letting go and saying yes and letting God do what God wants to do, there's where you get to practice it immediately. But there's also a million other ways that you, you and I get to practice that in the church. There's trust willing and trustworthy. Leaders that are in positions need to be trustworthy. And those that are, that, that, that are not in positions need to be trust willing. All right? Now, I want to say something real quickly and then we're going to be done. I'm going to give you a bonus thought tonight, all right? This isn't going to cost you anything extra tonight, all right? That's this, is that if you remember in this passage, the Bible says that the disciples were not able to do one thing and said, we are not able to do the ministry of the word, right? We can't wait tables and minister the word, and that's what we need to do, so we got to find some other guys to, to, to wait tables, right? That's what they were saying. The ministry of the word, what does that mean? And this is important in understanding the difference between trust willing and trustworthy. And here's what I want to say about it. The ministry of the word, I think we can get some really good clues about what this word means, what that phrase means by going to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Because this is what the Bible says there. It says that all scripture, the word, is God breathed, every bit of it. And so what's it useful for? What is the ministry of the word? Well, it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the servant of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Listen, the ministry of the word is more than being a great preacher. Okay? The Bible says that there are, t there are times that when you are doing the ministry of the word, there's preaching moments or teaching moments, but there's also rebuking moments. And that rebuke isn't, why did you pick blue carpet instead of red? Rebuking is, hey, I was reading my Bible and it says this, but I see you doing that. You mind us having a discussion? Right? So there is correcting. So if the Bible says this, 
and you're doing that, then let's look at this passage of Scripture that says what we need to be doing so that we can correct things. That's the ministry of the Word. And it's also for training. Hey, I see you doing this much and so proud of you, but don't you know that it also is these things because the Bible tells me so? So let's talk about doing it the Bible way, right? All of those things are the ministry of the word. And here's what I want to say to you before we close tonight, and that's this. In the trustworthiness that leaders need to have and the trust willingness that you need to have for the leaders that God has put in place for you, that does not mean that everything they do does, is, gets a get-out-of-jail-free card from the ministry of the word that God calls you to do for them. Are you hearing me? Leadership, true leadership, is not just down for the people that you're the boss of. True spiritual leadership is also for those that you are side by side with. And it is also for you to speak up into the one. Where would Nathan be? He was at the top of everything. Where would Nathan have ended up if Nathan, who was under him, had not been willing to minister the word up into his king? Right? And there are numerous times in the Bible where you see a man of God or a woman of God who is willing to take the word of God and teach up and rebuke up and correct up and train in righteousness up, okay? And so I think it's really important for us to understand all of that. Because there are going to be times where leaders that have been let go to do something and they have said, yes, I'll do it, are going to make mistakes that God is going to make you aware of. And if you and I are not willing to go to that person and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, in love, I want to say this to you. My Bible says this, but I see you doing that. Can we talk about it? Right? Because you may provide the correction that they need to take a disaster that David was already building for himself and stop it in its tracks right there. The ministry of the word. It's what God has called leaders to do and also followers to hold as a standard. Let me pray for you. Lord, I love you. And I thank you so much for your word that is so crazy relevant. And I pray, God, that we will be the church you want us to be. Not because we are doing what we think, but because we are desperately seeking you for the wisdom of what you intend to do and that we are desperate for the Holy Spirit to show up in us in powerful ways that we could never do in and of ourselves and accomplish your perfect will for the days that are to come. We love you. Teach us how to do this and forgive us where we haven't. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Love you, gang. Go get your marriage better, all right?